0: Hi, I'm Chris McBrien a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope.
1: Episode 11, Bombs Away. <laughs> it's Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien and that is Yancey Eaton. Uh, this week is going to be a good show. We're going to be talking about the biggest box office flops of all time, but it's a little bit of a different spin on them because um, we talked I think it was back on um, episode 6. We talked about cult movies and the thing with that was a lot of them were, you know, box office bombs, but then they kind of went on to new life, you know, from DVD and video and stuff like that and we love them. This week's a little different. We're going to talk about movies that bombed and stayed dead. Basically everyone hates them except us. For whatever reason we love some bombs. So uh, Yancey What's going on this week, brother?
0: Well, you know, I'm doing the retail management thing, so it, mm-hmm. it makes for really inconsistent schedules and stuff. Uh, yesterday was yeah. my first day off in, I don't know, eight or nine days, something like that. Oh, nice. And, what uh, did you do? Do anything fun I, and exciting? I did do something fun, and I actually like could not wait to tell you this. I, I oh, intentionally yeah. didn't text this to you or anything like that. I wanted to get this out on the show, but uh, I, I started surprises. watching a new show on yeah. Netflix. What Guess was what it? it? What is it? Uh, I will give you a hint. It started in 1982. 1982, is it Cheers? It was cheers. Ooh, very man, your, you can't get anything past <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, very nice. I, I don't know why I, I started watching it, but like I was really just scrolling through, and uh, I mean I've watched The Office from start to finish, the American version, like four or five times. I love The Office; I always will. But that's always like my crutch. Like I want to be entertained, and I want to watch something that I know that I'm going to enjoy, and it's familiar. So I always go back to the same things. So I've been trying to, you know, really challenge myself to watch other things that I know are, are relevant, and that you know, maybe you know, a different time. Time frame kind of thing. Obviously, it was the, the show started six years before I was born. So I started watching it, and it is very, very charming. It is very funny. I love the dynamic between Shelly and Ted. Like, it's just, well, you know, Sam and Diane. It's, it's, I, I'm kind of scared because uh, I've done a little bit of reading about it, and just to see all the characters that they bring on and some of the characters that go away, it's like, I'm almost afraid because I've um, I've only watched a handful of episodes, but it's so good right now that I'm I'm already like fearing
1: the inevitable change when it comes. I know, because like, you're yeah, because that's the thing you've been tipped off, because you know there's big changes in the cast coming. But here's the thing: that show is unbelievable, and I think I I, I mean you could speak to this better than me. I think it kind of stands up when you think. I mean I haven't seen it for years, but I think it really does stand the test of time. Maybe looks a little bit dated, but it takes place in a bar, right? But um, here's some interesting trivia on Cheers. I love trivia. So uh, the role that um, of Sam Malone was originally supposed to be given to William Devane so he's an actor you probably never heard of him he went on to know. be in he went on to be on things like I think Falcon Crest stuff like that but anyway so obviously um, uh, Ted Danson got the role you know it just was so great so the first year that it came out 1982 it debuts and then they have the ratings you know what I mean and then you know after like a couple of weeks or you know a couple months into the season the ratings come out guess where Cheers was on all the lists of all the network shows they list them Cheers was Dead Last the Dead absolute man. worst rated show of the year. And so NBC, of course, canceled it. And they canceled the show in mid-season and they got so many letters. Remember, this is before email. They got so many letters from fans that said, hey, 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 we love that movie. What do you do? Or we love that TV show. What are you doing? They brought it back. And it went on to become one of the most, you know, beloved TV shows of all time. And, and and Cliff Claven, you saw Cliff Claven on it. Remember, he was the the uh, the, rebel, the rebel guy on Hawk that we mentioned in the, in the Star Wars episode last week. So in um, in Empire yep. Strikes Back. Yep. So oh, it, you're going to really love it. It really don't fear the changes of the show. I know it's hard because the chemistry between Sam and Diane is so incredible.
0: It really but is it like really just is this like this palpable. Just I don't want to use the word adorable because it kind of gives it like this like juvenile meaning. But like the dynamic between the two of them, the the chemistry that they have, it just I can't think of a better word than adorable just yeah. seeing them back and forth like you you almost think that like they i mean you can tell that they really like each other outside of the show it's just I don't know. It's, it's it's. I don't know. I
1: don't know if they actually did or not. That's interesting because a lot of times on screen chemistry does not translate off screen. There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of really really good examples of that in in movies and television where you know a couple has just unbelievable chemistry on screen but they absolutely hate the hell out of each other off screen. You see it a lot. One that comes to mind is a movie called An Officer and a Gentleman. It came out right around that same time around '82, and Deborah Winger and Richard Gere were in it. They had unbelievable chemistry on screen, and they hated being in the same room together (laughs) shooting the scenes so sometimes you never know but uh, it's all interesting so uh, anyway are you ready to get into uh, some really big box office bombs this week i i am more than ready let's do this all right let's go And everyone knows how much I love Fonzie. I don't know if you've seen
0: any of the Sharknado movies. Shatner and Takei are going to be there. I cannot believe that this is actually possible. The Star Wars prequels were awful. Young Doctors in Love. Young Doctors
1: in Love. Bad CGI kind of starts and ends with George Lucas. Some of the worst CGI I have ever seen in my entire life. He ruined the whole original trilogy by superimposing Hayden Christensen over Sebastian Shaw at the end of Jedi. Okay, Yancy. I'm going to let you take us away. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, just to just kind of preface things, um, you know, sometimes movies bomb at the box office, right? But then they kind of go on and have sort of new life in the years that follow. Like we, you know, the Shawshank Redemption, this is Spinal Tap, you know, movies like that, they, they go on to have like huge cult followings and they become, you know, big, big movies over time. And then other movies bomb and then they just totally stay dead, right? And those are the ones that I'm interested in talking about this week. So let's talk about some box office bombs that you actually like even though no one else does. So Yancy, let's do another top 5 list this week. You start us off, your number 5 bomb of all time that you love.
0: Okay, so my number five, my parents watched this with me and they hated it. Like a lot of movies that I've already mentioned on the show. Um, I want to see if you can guess it. I'm going to give you just a little synopsis of it and see if you can guess this film. Uh, It is in 1999 when it was released, which we've already talked about. It's a great movie year for movies. Uh, It is an American superhero comedy film. It was directed by Kinka Usher and written by Neil Cuthbert and Bob Burden. And uh, let me name some of the characters that are in this movie. Hank Azaria, Claire Foyani, uh, Ben Stiller, William H Macy, Tom Waits. There's a lot of you know really well known actors in this. Um, the movie made 33 million dollars and it had a budget of 68 million. Ugh. Do you have any idea
1: what this movie is called? Uh, I don't actually. You've got me on that one.
0: Yeah, this was a really weird movie. It it obviously bombed. It didn't do good on DVD sales. Uh it, the movie is actually called Mystery Men. Oh and, yes, I yeah, remember it that one now.
1: Wasn't Paul <laughs> Rubens in it too, that I'm thinking about?
0: Uh, uh, I actually can't remember that, but I mean like Greg Kinnear was yeah, in it. Yeah, oh. Rubens was in it. You're, yeah, right, you're
1: right. Yeah, Wee Herman. He had a small role. Yeah, it was like a yeah, comeback yes, thing for him. Yes.
0: And uh, uh oh, I mean Eddie man. Eddie Izzard is in it. I mean there's just it, it, it's it's a really really weird movie obviously it's it, it's based on i don't want to say obviously because hardly anybody n- remembers the movie but um it's based on like anti-heroes where like you know there's this city and you know this fictitious city and you know the main hero goes missing so they assemble all of these like would-be you know heroes that aren't really heroes at all kind of thing um the uh, it's a superhero team basically and you know it's it's with Mr. Furious as Ben Stiller and the Shoveler you know by William H. Macy and then Blue Raja as Hank Azaria and they all have like not real powers but <laughs> like right like they like so and like one is like she uh it's just like a regular woman whose superpowers only work four times or four days a month because she's it only works when she's on her menstrual cycle it's like a really weird really really weird movie that might like i said my parents absolutely hated only did 33 and a half million dollars in the box office and it cost 68 million dollars to make um it's just it's so weird i mean some some uh, a couple other names that were in it uh artie lang dane cook's in it michael bay the entire Goody Mob, you know, the musical group Goody Mob, including CeeLo Green is in it. I mean, oh, in his little
1: tiny arms. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's just it's just <laughs> it's just a really, really odd movie. Oh, uh, I'm good. rambling right now, but if you guys can find it somewhere, find it on DVD. I don't think it's on Netflix, but go back and and enjoy this this amazing bad movie that is still bad. And it's mystery.
1: <laughs> oh, I like it. OK, my number five, by the way, I love this week's topic. This is awesome. Yes. OK, so my number five <laughs> from 1984 Break into electric boogaloo. (laughs) <laughs> so, so back in like the early 80s, breakdancing was like a big thing, right? And Yancy, you're obviously familiar with breakdancing, right?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: So I'm pretty sure that it goes all the way back to like James Brown with like the Goodfoot, you know, and then there was the B-boy. And then it kind of morphed into like these dance battles in Harlem. And then kind of eventually, you know, uh, breakdancing kind of came into the mainstream, like sort of anyway. But mm-hmm. um, some people, I guess, felt that breakdancing was popular enough to make a movie about. So they came out with this movie called Breakin' in 1984 and it was about this like jazz dance teacher and she meets these like street dancers and they're named like Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. And I'm not making this stuff up by the way. (laughs) And then they came out with a sequel now get ready for this.
0: It had a sequel. Yeah, a
1: sequel in the same year. <laughs> so so you know they didn't exactly put a lot of effort into making this It was a cash grab. It yeah, was like, let's yeah. re Yeah. Yeah. And let me tell you, watching it, you can tell they didn't put a lot of effort into it. It's like lowest common denominator filmmaking, if there ever was. Um, but the movie has become known in pop culture as kind of a tentpole in, in terms of like just completely unnecessarily and largely unwanted, you know, sequels. Uh, I remember my buddies in college and I, we used to always joke around about bad movie sequels by adding Electric Boogaloo to the movie title. Like, for example, we'd say, like, Teen Teen Wolf 2, Electric Boogaloo, or, like, Grease 2, (laughs) Electric Boogaloo. And funny enough, actually, Mike Myers, when he was making the sequel to Austin Powers, on the short list for titles was Austin Powers 2, Electric Boogaloo. And the other funny thing about the movie is that Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, is actually better than Breaking the first movie. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, I guess it's kind of like sort of looking at two piles of and saying, well, that one doesn't smell quite as bad as that one. You know what I mean? Oh, I tell you, no matter what, though, this movie, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, it becomes like this total inside joke for Gen Xers when it comes to sequels. So I had to include it on my list. Breakin' Boogaloo. Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. okay. So that's my Number four. What do you got? Okay.
0: So number four for me also is a 1999 film. This one's directed by Barry Sonnenfeld and was written by S.S. S. Wilson, Brent Maddock, Jeffrey Price, and Peter S. Seaman. I am not a, a film writer. You know, I don't write scripts or, or, you know, screenplays or anything like that. But just from the little bits that I've read doing the research for the show – most times if you have an entire team of, of people writing one script, that does not portend to end well. Like yeah, right. you, you have a lot of conflicting, you know, themes and like just really you know incoherent dialogue and stuff and uh, this film has lots of it. Again, I'm gonna let you guess it. It is a steampunk inspired western film that came out in nineteen ninety nine. Do you know what
1: it is? Uh a punk inspired western film? Steampunk. Oh, steampunk? steampunk? yes uh help what's what is steampunk exactly chris yeah no help me i'm remember i'm old okay
0: steampunk is uh it's like a whole genre of things i mean it can can be the way you dress or like an industrial design it's like if you ever go into like a bar and like it's it's all metallic and it's uh it's it's very very chic you see like a lot of like cast iron and stuff like it's actual like a like women who do cosplay whenever they do uh you know steampunk like it's literally they have all kinds of like metallic gadgets and and it's it's really really industrial looking that's like the whole
1: design of it is it is it with will smith is it wild wild west it is oh god yeah. oh good. Okay. oh okay good i got a question for you in the trivia segment tonight on that movie so this that's awesome cool oh, this, i just this I, didn't, be excellent. Yeah, okay. I didn't i didn't really know what steampunk was but there you go so i learned a okay. new thing
0: yeah obviously is a western it stars will smith and kevin klein kevin klein i'm sorry kevin klein actually plays multiple parts he's one of the heroes and he's also one of the pro- or the uh, antagonists two separate characters and of course it has the lovely sama hayek in it as well uh, this movie is weird it is bad the total cost of production was over 170 million dollars and it did return 220 million but if you look at the reviews of it it Obviously, the movie was just universally tanked. Everybody said that it sucked, including almost every single person that's seen it. Um, It does not have any type of staying quality whatsoever. Um, Anybody who ever admits to watching it once will admittedly say that they've never watched it again. Um, I, on the other hand, love it, just because, you know, I I think the reason why I gravitate you know, to movies in between like 99 to like 2002. It's just because of the age where I was, you know, I was 11, 12 years old. Everything that came out around that time was good to me. You know what I mean? I was a child. Like I couldn't discern between what was a fantastic film and what was a horrible film. We had this one VHS and my siblings and I, we just wore it out. Um, To make to make things even better about (laughs) wild, wild West is of course the accompanying rap song. That was its title theme starring Will Smith. Um, That's very, very bad. I'll, I'll give you one scene uh, just to like paint a picture for those of you who haven't seen it. Will Smith, uh, he's, you know, in the lair, you know, with the bad guy, whatever the uh, the bad guy of the film and there's all these people around and will smith is dressed up as like a belly dancer and you know he has like a veil over his face and stuff and he's you know doing like these like violent like erotic like convulsions and like seducing this guy and he leans in and he's slipping a key to his partner you know who is handcuffed and he basically says like you know this brazier is killing me and this garter belt is riding up my a-. you know it's just like it's it's so awkward and so bad I mean literally from start to finish the entire movie is just painfully awkward and like you can't help but asking yourself over and over again like why does this movie exist like why did they make this movie you know what I mean like it's it's not it's not uh, it doesn't jive at all I mean it has everything you look for though in steampunk centric westerns if that me- makes any kind of <laughs> sense. I mean it has like an 80 foot mechanical tarantula. The main villain is legless and like he's on like a mechanical like a wheelchair type thing. Like I said, completely incoherent dialogue. It's just such a weird movie that my siblings and I loved, you know, when we were kids. And somehow it still holds up for me. I watched it a couple
1: years ago and I loved it. So Will Smith's uh, Wild Wild West is number four. Very nice. Okay, my number four is Flash Gordon from 1980. And back in the 30s and 40s, uh, Flash Gordon, the comic strips, they were really, really popular. Right. And then they even turned them into movie serials back then. And they went on to inspire like several future Hollywood directors, not least of which was George Lucas. And like, he loved those old serials. So did Spielberg. And they were actually inspirations for Star Wars and Raiders. Uh, But King Features wanted like all this money, you know, um, for the rights to the name of Flash Gordon. And so Dino De Laurentiis ended up optioning the rights and Lucas tried to get the rights from him but he just wanted too much money so Lucas decided oh forget it I'll just write Star Wars instead so that worked out pretty well Um, Mm -hmm. but you know by the time they got around to making the Flash Gordon movie Star Wars had already taken over the pop culture landscape and it had set a new standard for science fiction and filmmaking in general, really, right? So it was, I think, really clear to everybody involved that Flash Gordon was going to be really difficult to sell to audiences in 1980. So the producers decided, let's take the approach of making it deliberately campy. You know, they used all these over-the-top costumes, and these sets were lit with, like, weird colors. They did it by, like, shining lights through these sort of tanks of water on set. and But the problem was, when they came around to shoot the scenes— There was a lot of disagreements about playing it campy, so they had the actors play it straight, and it just didn't work. You know, you you got these actors trying to play it straight against all these over-the-top sets and costumes. The whole thing's a mess, and they were going to get Kurt Russell to play the lead, and he turned it down, so they ended up going with Sam Jones, who had been discovered, I guess if you could call it that, by he was on an episode of The Dating Game. And then he was also a playgirl centerfold model, and so he, yeah, they they hired him to be the lead role to play Flash Gordon. He ends up like arguing with Dino De Laurentiis, you know, uh, about you know about coming back in. De Laurentiis wanted him to come back in and do loops, okay, on his dialogue, and he wouldn't do it. He wanted more money and all this. So De Laurentiis said, "Fine, no problem," and he just dubbed the whole dialogue. So if you watch the movie, all of Sam Jones' lines in the movie are overdubbed by another actor. So are you kidding me yeah needless to say the movie it didn't do very well but no you know what regardless as a 10 year old at the time i loved the movie i you know i have a lot of fond memories of it as a kid i've rewatched it as an adult i still like it the song by queen is great um i let my kid actually listen to the song and now he wants to watch the movie so i'll let you know how that goes what's the song uh it's called flash and it's by Queen By Queen yeah, Give it a listen You can actually find it on YouTube um, And you'll see They kind of have the opening of the movie With the, the, song, the song Well I mean anything Queen did was great I mean Frederick Mercury was the best right So they did, it was really really good But it was just really campy um, I liked it So it's my number four Flash Gordon Alright
0: I'm making a little note right here To look that up on YouTube awesome. since we go okay. off.
1: So what's your number three All right, so
0: my number three also came out in 1999, which I don't know why I keep doing that. I don't do it on purpose, but here we are. Uh, This movie, it stars Willem Dafoe and Norman Reedus of Walking Dead fame. Uh, It's essentially a movie about two Irish brothers that take matters into their own hands by becoming vigilantes. Um, The movie, of course, is Boondock Saints. And this is one of those movies where it does have a little bit of a cult following, but not nearly to the caliber of some of the other films that we've talked about in the past. Um, Its timing was incredibly unfortunate as I I can't remember if it was exactly um, if it lined up perfectly. But, you know, of course, that year when it was scheduled to be released, it was the Columbine uh, shootings. And, you know, you know, there was this huge national discussion about guns and uh, you know, whether the movie should have even been made. I can't, re- like I said, I can't remember exactly how it lined up with the production versus the release and how that coincided with the actual school shooting. But it basically only had a five theater run and it only earned $30,000 wow. in five theaters. Yeah. Um, eventually, just through word of mouth, it, it started picking up, you know, DVD sales and stuff like that and eventually grossed about $50 million, but that was still much less than it took to make it. Um, most of the, uh, like I said, most of the success came directly from word of mouth, despite the fact that it was completely trashed by basically every single critic who watched it. And one of the recurring things that i seen in multiple reviews that I read for this was everybody said that the directors and the writers were trying to do like a really bad impression of like a Quentin Tarantino movie where like you could tell like Tarantino was their idol, but the execution was just so poor. But despite that, I mean, being like a 16-year-old kid, whenever you see this movie for the first time, um, you know, it was years after this movie had been released that I had seen it. Um, my mom wouldn't let me watch that as an 11-year-old. But um, I remember watching with some friends of mine at a Halo 2 party that we were having. Uh, obviously, Halo 2 is a video game. Chris, mm-hmm. yep, we talked I'm about aware. this. Yeah, yep. okay. okay. And uh, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, we're good. And uh, it's just one of those like... You know, this it's kind of dark to admit this, but like there's a part of like every teenage boy that kind of like wishes he was like this badass who like, you know, takes down criminals and like stands up for like the little man and you know, it's just all around just he doesn't answer to anyone and he kind of makes his own rules and that movie always like applied to me. It's still, like I said, a a very kind of fly under the radar film, but it holds up and I think it's like a really dark, just well done film and you know, it's one of those films anytime it's on TV I I will watch it. I will watch it. So
1: Moondock Saints, number three for me. All right, that's a good one. Okay, my number three. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh from 1978. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Oh, baby, let me tell you. This one's a doozy. (laughs) So, Yancy, I got to ask you, what do you think you get when you combine disco, basketball, and astrology? (laughs) <laughs> one of the worst movies of all time, apparently. It's so it's the movie is about this basketball team, and they're called the Pittsburgh Pythons, and it's got all these like real life basketball players, uh, you know, from the time in it. Like there's like Meadowlark Lemon and Dr. J. They're on the team, and guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Connie the Hawk Hawkins. They got cameos. This team is awful, right? And they lose every single game. So mm-hmm. um, one guy, one guy. I remember at the beginning of the movie, he's in the middle of a game, and he pulls up his jersey, and it's written "Trade me" is written in big white letters. On his, on stomach. his jersey, yeah, no, on his stomach. <laughs> it's written on his stomach. He's a black guy. He's got the big white letters "Trade Me," and so the, they try to t- to turn the team around. So the t- the team goes and hires an astrologist, played by none other than Stockard Channing, Rizzo from Greece, and she determines <laughs> that that the astrological sign for the team. is is Pisces and she uses astrology to try and help them start winning so the Pisces the the fish thus that saved Pittsburgh right so when, I remember when I was in university my roommate John Gott and I we used to watch this movie on VHS we'd always make inside jokes about it I, I remember I had this book that listed like movie reviews of like every movie ever made and I remember, I remember the review for the movie was something like it said like it's a, it's a story about a Wobegon basketball team that uses astrology to win and the film is Wolbegon gone too and it, it was a huge bomb no wonder but I loved it you know did you see it in theaters no 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 I didn't see it in theaters at the time but I but I saw it like like on VHS and I just loved it and, and let me tell you it's the fish that saved Pittsburgh whoa whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome okay so number two uh, what do you got okay
0: my, this film isn't it's not like a funny film yeah. at all Um, My next one is, but this one is a little bit more of a serious movie. Um, Again, there's like a a occurring theme here where the movie was basically tanked by critics and it did not do well in theaters at all. It's probably the weirdest movie, in my opinion, that Robin Williams ever made or was ever a part of. I haven't seen all of his catalog, but I mean, this is easily just the absolute weirdest for me. Um, It's Bicentennial Man. Have you seen
1: it? Oh, no, I've heard about it. I heard it. It looks weird.
0: Okay, yeah, it is very weird. It's it's a, it's a long movie. It's very weird. My parents pieced out like halfway through it. I basically stayed up late watching it by myself. Um, it's a film ab- adaptation of the Isaac Asimov novel of the same name. Obviously, Chris, Isaac Asimov is like one of the original gangsters of science fiction. I mean, he's written a ton of books. And everybody who, I mean, knows anything about science fiction owes this guy, you know. I mean, he's the Shakespeare of science fiction, basically. He's like the, the godfather. Right. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's basically about a robot, uh, this family. It's, it's in the near future. This family gets this robot. It's an android that basically helps out around the house and does, you know, menial tasks and stuff like that. And he's basically kind of like a nanny. Um, but over time, uh, he basically develops like a really close relationship to the family, or at least some of them. Uh, some of them are curious about him. Some of them are accepting some of the family actually grows to hate and resent him and they actually try to do harm to him. But like I said, he he develops a real personality and like this really visceral sense of identity. Um, eventually, he becomes so, you know, just like entrenched like in his own personal beliefs that like he actually asks for his freedom and is eventually given it by his owners. So he basically lives, you know, as, I want to say a human, but he lives on his own as like his own entity. Um, over the course of the next century, he uses... Um, all of his skills that he has to create prosthetics for himself to try to make himself look as human as humanly possible um, I mean he literally has like artificial skin he builds himself like a nervous system so he can feel things like you know heat and you know pain and stuff like that um, you know, he, he figures out a way to, like, attach hair to himself. It gets so far to where, like, it really toys with, like, that idea of, you know, what is human and what is a machine, basically. At one point, he basically, like, petitions the World Congress of that time, you know, based in this movie, to recognize him as, like, a real human being. Which, of course, they don't because they say that, uh, you know, there's, you know, a, a person can can live with the idea that, you know, an android lives forever but they can't live with the idea that a human being has you know complete immortality it's this it's a really really deep movie and it's just like it it, it's entrenched with so many things about like you know social conformity and love and you know artificial intelligence and our natural prejudices against people that aren't like us and it touches on all that stuff it's super super dense it was tanked um everybody hated it critics hated it my parents hated it um i had to watch it once and of course you know just being a kid like there was a lot of stuff that i didn't realize about it but i've gone back to maybe like two three times whatever it's still if you look on like rotten tomatoes and stuff like that nobody likes this film for whatever reason like it doesn't resonate with them at all but for me it's just like this perfect film that touches on all these issues that nothing else ever has in science fiction before so um it's kind of weird like going to this from your fish your Pittsburgh Pythons or whatever the movie was. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. But yep. yeah, this is this is one of those movies for me that really, it just flies under the, uh, the general consciousness of, of science fiction. So that's oh. my number two.
1: There you go. That's a good one. Okay, my number two is Continental Divide from 1981. Anyone that knows me really well will tell you one of my favorite actors of all time was John Belushi. I think the work he did on SNL was some of the best ever in regard to that show. We talked about that back on episode three of the podcast. And really, he only had major roles in just seven feature films, but I don't think he was ever better than he was in Continental Divide. And if you look at the last two films of his career, he played both against type and mainstream audiences just they just didn't go for it. And you got to think about it. after his movie debut in Animal House in 78, people expected him, you know, to see him every time as the slob Bluto in every role that he did. And he wasn't about that. Right. He wanted to try different things. He was an actor, for crying out loud. And, you know, seeing him as the male lead in a romantic comedy was just not something audiences expected from him, nor did they want to see him in that. And it's too bad because if Continental Divide had been his first film, I think he would have been set up for a long career as a leading man. I mean, mm-hmm. it would obviously would have been cut short, you know, by his death. I mean, this movie came out in September of 81, and he died six months later in March of 82. But like, from a perception point of view, I think audiences would have accepted him more as a leading man if this had been his first movie. Because if you only know him as Bluto or Jake Blues, I would strongly suggest that you you might want to go back and take a look at this movie and see what he does here, because his performance He's very, very good. He, he's vulnerable. Uh, he plays this guy that's like love Lauren, but he's also really funny and he's got a lot to work with it's, as far as the script is concerned. Um, Lawrence Kasdan wrote the script and at the time he was getting established as a screenwriter in Hollywood. He, he worked on The Empire Strikes Back. and But he had this script for a romantic comedy that he wrote and he showed it to Steven Spielberg Spielberg loved the script so Spielberg even acted as executive producer on the film and I'm telling you if you watch the movie it's actually really good and so in it blue she's like this crack journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times and he's going after this like corrupt city councillor Jablonowitz and then he gets into hot water so he's got to get out of town for a while so his editor decides he's going to assign him to a story about this reclusive woman in the Rocky Mountains and she does research on endangered bald eagles. So he goes out there. They obviously have nothing in common. He loves the city. He likes smoking and drinking. And she likes being secluded from people and like fresh air and mountains. And of course, they fall in love. And I'll tell you what, I'm usually not a big fan of romantic comedies. I usually only watch them with my wife, you know. So I'm
0: not either. Yeah, you know.
1: So yeah, I watch it with her. So in return, you know, maybe she'll watch the movies I want to watch, you know. Um, (laughs) But I, but I've always really, really enjoyed this movie. To me, it's a throwback to the Hepburn and Tracy films of like the '40s and '50s. It just didn't connect with audiences. Like I say, they wanted to see Belushi at a toga party instead of in a love scene, and it's just it's too bad. Because as far as movie bombs go, it is one of my all time favorites.
0: You know, I was looking up on Netflix just now, and Mm -hmm. there isn't a single. Part of his catalog, of Belushi's catalog, on Netflix? No. no, Nothing. I know. know. Nothing. I know earlier when you mentioned that. Not
1: even the best of Belushi on SNL, I don't think, is it?
0: Yeah, no. I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about James Brown. I was going to cut in that uh, I watched Delirious the other night. It's on Netflix. Oh, good for you. And he does, like, the
1: best James Brown impersonation. I mean, Eddie Murphy is just. You've got to find, I think it's on YouTube somewhere, the James Brown hot tub party sketch that he does on SNL. Eddie Murphy, it's just. It's amazing because yeah, he's in costume and he's jumping in out of the hot tub and he's yelling at the band and stuff like that. You got to see it.
0: Yeah. This is obviously like a huge digression from what we're supposed to be talking about. But I don't think people realize just like, man, Eddie Murphy did some of the best impressions I've ever heard. Ever. ever yeah. Like him doing Michael Jackson like he can actually really sing and he sounds oh, just yeah. like Michael Jackson
1: like oh, yeah. it's Stevie it's Wonder everybody yep it was great yeah. okay anyway number one box office bomb of all time that you gotta yeah. go
0: my number one uh, box office bomb i like movies uh this i mentioned this earlier i like movies where um there are multiple like there's all kinds of stars in the movie even if they're just doing cameos but like there's just like this hodgepodge of like a bunch of actors and actresses that you know a lot of them you know really well some of them you, you know their face but you can't remember what you know exactly what movie they were in but just like throw like the kitchen sink at, at them you know like tons and tons of actors being this movie so this movie came out in 1996 um, I will give you some of the names that were in this movie and I want you to tell me what it is okay, okay sure it had Natalie Portman It had Tom Jones. It had Michael J. Fox, Sarah Jessica Parker, Martin Short. It had Danny DeVito. It had Pierce Brosnan. It had Glenn Close, and it had Jack Nicholson playing two separate roles, including the President of the United States. What's the movie? Oh, Mars Attacks? It's Mars Attacks. (coughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, Mars Attacks is another one of those weird movies. I like, like I said, I like movies with a ton of actors and actresses that you wouldn't expect to be together. I love that, right? I love movies that... As soon as you start watching it, you can immediately recognize that it is bad, right? You Even if you like it, you can acknowledge and you can see that, hey, you know what? The general public is not going to like this. <laughs> I love that stuff. And I love movies that while you're watching it, you're constantly questioning why it was being made. <laughs> Mars Attacks is, is one of those movies for me. Obviously, it's um, it was uh, – based on the trading card series game, which I actually didn't know before I was doing the research, but I guess there was some sort of trading card series um, of the same name that they, you know, made this adaptation for this movie. Um, It has all kinds of, uh, I mean, it's basically like a parody of science fiction. It's an intentionally a B movie, you know, one of those like intentionally bad movies. It has black comedy. It has political satire. Um, As I alluded to earlier, Jack Nicholson playing dual roles. He's the president of the United States, James Dale. And he's also uh, a developer, a land developer in Las Vegas uh glenn close is the first lady and uh, i I think her part is just amazing in it the aliens obviously are uh just out of this world I, i don't no pun intended but i i don't know how to explain like how weird and like poorly made the aliens were but it actually like strangely works for this the martians were actually created by a really really uh famous and influential company a development company i don't know if you've ever heard of industrial light and magic chris have you yep Yes, of course. Obviously you
1: have yep, yep. um, Lucas started it you know, for star Wars.
0: Yeah. Um, that was, you know, that was a, a, a slow pitch that I threw to you and you Thank knocked out yeah, that's right. Very- yeah. Thanks for um, loving me that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, a, it's, it's one of those really weird movies where it does not hold up, you know, it does not stand the test of time. It's not going to be on anybody's list of their favorite movies. Um, It cost $70 million to make. They spent nearly $30 million to market it. And its gross was $101 million. So they basically profited about a million dollars making this film, which I just think is insane it's 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 insane especially considering all the star power that they had behind it just how much money they spent in you know in promoting the film and stuff like that it never took off like I said I I mentioned this before it's one of the few Tim Burton films that I actually like you know this along with like Edward Scissorhands and maybe one or two others Um, but it is just a weird movie um The critics hated it then. The critics hate it now. And if you ask most people, this is a movie that they've completely wiped clean from their memory. They're not going to think about it. If it ever came out, they're not going to buy the DVD. They're not going to watch it on Netflix. It's just – it's one of those bad movies that I will always love. So Mars Attacks is my number one. Nice. Nice. At least it made money.
1: Mine lost big-time money on this one. $1 billion though? Do you really count that as – this, okay. Well, this movie that I'm about to, to tell you about cost 51 million dollars to make and made 14. So okay. it is one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. I think I know what it is. But it's also the best, at least in my opinion, and that's Ishtar. Uh, it, that's not what I'm saying. It, okay. came, it came out in May of 1987, but before anyone ever even even saw the movie, it already had this like massive negative publicity. It went way over budget. Like it said, $51 million. There was like all these stories of like arguments and fighting on the set. Dustin Hoffman, he was already really, really well established as probably the hardest actor to work with in Hollywood at the time. And okay, let's take him and let's put him together with Warren Beatty, who's probably, you know, his I would say his popularity at the time was probably only overmatched by his massive ego. Right, so okay, let's put them both together and match them up with first-time director Elaine May, and then, oh, better yet, let's send them off to Morocco and have them shoot a comedy in the desert. What could possibly go wrong? Right? (laughs) Uh, Well, everything. (laughs) So um, a comedy in the desert. Yeah, I think one of the the, one of the biggest uh, problems um, was that you know audiences. They heard all about this huge comedy, you know, that was going to be coming out. You know, they're they're making this, this huge comedy starring two of the biggest box office actors, you know, of all time in this movie. It cost a fortune to make. So audiences were expecting the greatest movie ever made. And instead they got Ishtar. And I think really if you sort of strip away the bad press, you know, all the fighting and all the issues with the budget and, you know, the production disaster, I think you're actually left with a pretty damn good little movie. You know, the problem is, like I say why the hell did it cost 51 million dollars to make it mm-hmm. um i was a big fan of ishtar when i first saw it back in 87 everyone that i knew thought i was nuts uh, a lot of people still do um but i tell you what if you're looking for a quirky fun movie ishtar is really enjoyable the, the, the problem is when you look at it why did they cast those two actors in the film like they both play against type i I'm, Although I guess you could say that's kind of a tough claim for Hoffman, right? Because, I mean, he's a real versatile actor, but it could have been made with any two actors, you know, playing the leads. But anyway, as a movie, so it's about these two singer-songwriters are in New York, and they're both, like, horrible at singing and songwriting. And you know what? Think about it now. Actually, the movie might have played a lot better, you know— You know, decades later when, you know, the public reveled in like bad auditions at American Idol. You know what I mean? But anyway, these guys, they can't sing. Their songs are horrible. So they joined together. They form this singer-songwriter team, like kind of like Simon and Garfunkel, but like just no talent. And um, the scenes where they're singing the songs and writing the songs are just hilarious. And so these guys can't get any gigs. So they get this agent who gets him a gig, you know, singing at a hotel in Morocco. So they go there, and of course, they get caught up in all this, like, political intrigue in the Middle East. They meet this woman, she's got a secret map, and then there's, like, these insurgent guerrillas. Charles Grodin is in it. He's, like, a CIA officer. There's, like, a gunfire with, you know, these missile launchers and everything, and it's just crazy. And at the end, like, the CIA wants the map, so they agree to set up this huge concert for them where they can play their horrible songs at. And it's just a total mess, but I love every second of that movie, every time I watch it. Ask my my old college roommates, because I used to make them watch it over and over again with me. I was, like, the worst roommate ever, I tell you. But anyway, I love Ishtar, and I'm not ashamed to say it. So... Those are our, like, box office bombs that we love. We're getting up against the clock, so let's, let's have a little bit of fun with Yancey. Okay, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Real quickly, I'm just going to throw some, some questions at you, Yancey, about some of the biggest box office bombs of all time. Okay? Okay, Okay. Yes. So, so, this 1995 Kevin Costner movie went over budget during production and gained such negative press, it was actually nicknamed Fish Tar. Can you name it? I can. I was actually going to give this an honorable
0: mention as one of my favorite bombs, because I think it's a cool movie. It was just really poorly executed, yep. and the expectation was really high. It's it's a water world, but I had never heard that fish tar analogy. That's
1: amazing. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, so this 2013 Johnny Depp bomb was a remake of a 1981 bomb. It, oh. was, it was a Western. It's centered on a former Texas Ranger who dons a mask in order to fight outlaws in the Wild West alongside his Native American sidekick, can you name the film? It's uh Johnny Depp is the Native American. Yes, Tonto. It's oh
0: my god, what is it? It's not it's not no that's Chuck Norris. It's not Texas Ranger, it's it's Lone Ranger. The Lone Oh, Ranger. the Lone
1: Ranger. There you go. You got it. in just you just beat the buzzer. Good for you. Okay, so we mentioned Eddie Murphy, and I tell you what, during the 80s he was the king of Hollywood. Like movies like Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America, they they made Coming him one, to
0: America is awesome. Oh, it's <laughs> awesome! It's you know
1: those <laughs> movies made him one of the biggest box office draws in the world, right? But you know, after several years, sometimes Hollywood stars they fade, and um, things sort of hit a new low for for poor Eddie. In it th- In two thousand and two, yep, he had this box office flop, and it, what it was, it was about him running a nightclub on the moon, and it was a science fiction comedy. Can you name oh. the movie? One of the biggest bombs of all time
0: i've I've actually watched this movie.
1: Oh, what was this? It's named oh. after a former planet in our solar system. It's like it was a planet then it was changed to a dwarf planet. I know you're an astronomy kind of guy.
0: I know it's pluto, but yep. like it, it's like a long it's a long name it's like it's like five or six
1: words in the title The adventures of Pluto Nash that's what it is okay. I- All right, I got one for you here. This is uh, based on a comic book character from the 70s and 80s, and this comic book character was originally sort of conceived as using themes of, like, existentialism and, like, social parody, and the movie rights were optioned by George Lucas, of all people, and a live-action film was released in 1986. It consisted of a little person in a bird suit playing the lead character. Now... The producers obviously they wanted to change the direction of the film from that social satire to more of a family-friendly movie. So yeah, of that course- sounds like a good idea. Yeah, okay. so of course, and of course, in order to do that, they have the, this lead character almost having sex with Marty McFly's mom, Leah Thompson. Oh my my my! But anyway, needless to say, the movie bombed, and it's widely considered to be one of the worst movies ever made. Can you name the movie?
0: Is it Howard the Duck?
1: Oh, congratulations! Very, very good. Yes, I've it never is.
0: actually watched that movie, but I I do know like how it's linked to just being complete dog. Yeah. I've 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 heard this
1: before. Yeah, I actually kind of liked it, but you know that's me. I just love bomb movies. Okay, so Will Smith, you mentioned him, you mentioned the movie. So I was gonna you know mention about the bomb movie that he made in 1999. Obviously, you know it's Wild Wild West. So instead, can you mm-hmm. sing can you sing some of the lyrics from his song?
0: Uh. I know it's, uh, there's one part he says, Will
1: West, Taming the West, I remember the name. Any damsel that's in distress, be out of that dress when she meets Jim West. Come on. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Swallow your pride, let your lip react. You want to see my hand where my hip be at. You know, remember that? We're going straight two oh, you know, wow. I, I understand son I'm the slickest it is I'm the quickest it is did I say it was the slickest it is oh my you this me? is really bad this, this is, is just bad awful so let's just end this right now and we'll just go out because <laughs> it's bombing you know so that's, so that's the thing right it's a bomb bombshell yeah. so there you go so it's perfect anyway it's uh, at C McBrian or at Yancey Eaton on Twitter you always shoot, you shoot us an email chris at popgoesyourworld.com or yancey at popgoesyourworld.com thank you for listening to Pop Goes Your World the pop cultural podcast for the generations thank you for listening to the pop goes your world podcast continue the conversation on twitter at c McBrien or at Yancey eaton please consider leaving a review for the podcast on itunes or wherever you download and listen to the show